we are jumping into Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, go ahead and go there now. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you need one, please raise your hand. I have some friends in the back who are, love to hook you up with a paperback Bible. Just keep it up nice and high and we'll get after it. Before we read this morning, there are a couple things we need to talk about. Number one, how many Duck fans are in the house? I'm sorry. So are we. I am feeling for you this morning because, must I say, just get a rebound. Not once, but twice. <laughs> if you're a Beaver fan, please... Show the love of Jesus and hug a duck today. <laughs> and ducks, remember, your joy is in the Lord. <laughs> hey, no, in all seriousness, uh, one thing we do need to be reminded of is over the past several weeks, even months, we have been in Romans and we have seen a theme that's kind of stretched over the whole entire book. And that is the gospel is the good news for everyone. But in that, there's kind of subset themes we're going to see throughout Romans. And right now, in 5 through 8, we've seen this theme of the hope of the good news. And this morning, we want to discover more hope together in the good news, all right? And so let's get after it right away. Starting in verse 1 of Romans 8, it says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here Paul's continuing a thought from the previous chapter. And we know this because he uses the language, therefore. Previously in Romans 7, verses 24 through 25, Paul says this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law of sin and death has left Paul describing his personal resume. I am wretched. I am headed towards death is what he says. If we remember last week, the law has some purposes. And some of those purposes are this. One, the law reveals sin. In Romans 4 verse 15, it says this. Where no law is, there is no transgression. Maybe another way to say that is, where there is no speed limit, you have no one that speeds. But where there is a speed limit, we have people who speed. Where no law is, there is no transgression. So we see that the law reveals sin. We also see that the law arouses sin. Something in human nature wants to rebel whenever there is law given. People who try to live by rules or regulations tend to, man, they tend to just kind of break down underneath their legalistic system. And it only actually arouses more sin and more problems. One way I thought about this was every year at summer camp, I, I went to a lot of summer camps growing up. My dad, I'm a PK, so I'm a pastor's kid, so I would go to these summer camps. I really had no choice but loved them. 
But one of the reasons I re- one of the things I remember about summer camp is there was always an orientation. So we'd walk into this cafeteria or gym or whatever, and they would give us an orientation of what camp is going to be like. And every orientation, there was always seven to ten rules. Camp law. And every single time we had camp, I remember one specifically. No camp pranks. Even as I say that, I kind of get excited. Not only did I have these done to me, but yes, I participated. One thing that I saw, though, happen over the years was it actually was so exciting that even counselors would get involved. A couple good ones that I saw. One, the boys went and pranked the girls and they stole clothing and hung it in trees. So it was like Christmas all over camp with, you know, clothing ornaments. Another one I saw was actually involved the counselors. Counselors um, did something, um, pranked their own cabin. And then this guy woke up, though, seeing that it was the counselors. But rather than, you know, throwing a fit, he kind of just took it, knowing it was them. And so the next day, he, we were at a camp where you could go off you know, if you were old enough, you could go off of campsite. He took his motorcycle and went off campsite and found some roadkill. He strapped it to the bottom of the minivan that the counselors came to camp in. You know, the hot spot? They had a four-hour drive. At every gas station that they needed to stop at, especially one, okay, one, it stunk so bad. When they got back to the college that they came from, the smell had seeped up through the floors of the minivan. My point is, friends, law arouses sin. Not only does the law elevate that in us, but it also, the law, but it also kills The law cannot give life. It can only show the sinner that he is guilty and condemned. See, this understanding comes from Paul himself. Look at Romans 7, verses 10 through 11. It says this, I found, Paul's saying, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. The law arrived and we couldn't keep it. The problem isn't God. The problem isn't his ways. The problem isn't what he said. The problem is me. The problem is us. The law has served to reveal humanity's brokenness, helping reveal our need for a savior. One of my favorite quotes from Jose's Jose's message last week was, The law has enhanced or elevated elevated something within me that was already off. See, the law elevates our sinfulness. But it's in this spot where Paul reminds us of the hope of the good news. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is now, right now, today, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a phrase 
in Christ, that in Christ phrase is something we say a lot around here, but what does it exactly mean? Well, in short, this is a result of those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. A person who's in Christ recognizes their need for a Savior. They understand that their sin has been has placed them outside of a relationship with God the Father, and they are needing to be saved. Through Jesus' work on the cross, this salvation comes. He died so that you and I might experience life. When you're in Christ, you trust Jesus as the one and the only Savior. But not only is Jesus Savior, He is also Lord. The Christian recognizes him as Lord. A person who's in Christ comes under the leadership of Jesus. Comes under the leadership of Jesus. And no longer looks to do what they would like to do, but instead looks to Jesus. A Christian would say, and have the attitude, God's will, not mine. To be in Christ is to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and nothing less. So being in Christ comes with much blessing. One is mentioned here in verse 1. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ, you are not condemned. Do you believe this? Really, do you believe this this morning? I'm afraid that this morning some of us have misinterpreted who we are in Jesus. We need to grow in this because right belief leads to who you really are, which leads to freedom and living a life that looks more like Jesus. See, no condemnation reminds us of our position with God. The phrase not condemned is a legal term and it means to be free from any debt or penalty. In other words, no one has any charges against you. Here in chapter 8, God reveals that he has nothing against us. He finds nothing to punish us for. It was all absorbed by Jesus. And for the Christian, there is no condemnation at all. It doesn't exist. Do you live that way? Do you live with that as a reality? Because, friends, we should all be going, come on! This is great news. I, in Jesus, am not condemned. So how did this happen? Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 3 begins with the progression of how one is free from condemnation. God sent Jesus, his own son, a loving father, willing to step in, engage, and fix the mess that you and I have made. Next, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The key word we need to pick out of this verse is likeness. Jesus was not sinful. Instead, he lived here on earth without fault, without sin, and Jesus is the only one 
with the capacity to make our wrongs right with God. Which leads us to Jesus being the sin offering. Jesus freely gave his life to pay the penalty of death. In Jesus, we now meet God's righteous requirement. This doesn't mean we didn't sin or don't sin. It simply means that Jesus has paid it all. He's paid for all of it. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. So now what? Let's look at verse 4, the, the end of it. It says this, Those who have been made right do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So all these things are true about a Christian. And now we get to live according to the Spirit. A hope of the good news is that the follower of Jesus now lives with God rather than apart from him. God has given his kids his Spirit. And the same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you. Sure, there's still a tug of war that's happening between our new life and our old selves. But the difference is before in our old selves, there was no opportunity to overcome sin. We were dead in our sin, but now there is no condemnation, no penalty, no death, but instead we are alive. And last time I checked, A living person is very different than a dead person. Very different. The gospel is so significant that it gives hope for you and I today. We've received life. We get to live differently. We get to think and live like Jesus. And the Spirit enables us to live as God first intended us to live. We now get to live according to the Spirit and not of the flesh. So what's the contrast? What's the differences we see between the spirit and the flesh? Let's look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What we see here in these few uh, verses is that Paul says the connection between living and thinking is a very close and tight one. Literally, he says, for those being according to the flesh, they mind the things. They mind the things of the flesh. Whereas those according to the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. In other words, whatever you have your mind set on shapes your lifestyle and shapes your character. To set one's mind on something has a stronger connotation than just, oh, I think I'll, I'll just think about it. No, what's described here in the text is that When you um, mind the Spirit, you are focused intently on it. You are preoccupied with it. Or you're completely captured by it. In verses 5 through 8, we see two different types of people mentioned. And one is preoccupied with the human nature or the sinful nature or the flesh. Whereas the other is captured by the Spirit. So 
Again, in contrast, we see the person apart from God has their mind set on what sinful nature desires. They are dominated by godly impulses. They cannot please God, and they are under the sentence of death. Whereas the person who's trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord has the Spirit. He or she is no longer dominated by sinful nature. Instead, our deepest desires are now led by the Spirit. The Christian's mind is set on the things of God. What does what God's heart beat for? Our, we should be consumed by that. We should go, man, we want that. I want to experience that. I want to know God's heart for me. I want to know God's heart for the world. I want to, God, tell me more. That's the way that it, that's a way that it looks like to live by the Spirit. So what are some other ways that we see this work out practically? Well, one, worry. Let's say I'm becoming extremely worried about something. If you care about causes or people, or let's say you have goals, most likely you're going to worry or have concerns. But if the worry becomes debilitating, it is because I'm forgetting that I'm a child of God and that my heavenly Father would only exercise his control over the universe in a way that would be loving to his own. Overworry, again, overworry is forgetting the things of the Spirit. Another example of this is when guilt and, se- and a sense of unworthiness drive us. A sign of this would be, oh, I've got to do all these things. When we assume a crushing number of responsibilities because we're trying to work off or make up for our sin. In this case, we're also forgetting the things of the Spirit. It was so cool in pre-gathering prayer today, someone even mentioned this verse, 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. A person can never work off or make up their sin, make up for their sin. Only Jesus could, and guess what? He did. And this is where freedom floods into a person. Rather than focusing on the lie that you need to do more to get right with God, you as a person say, no, Jesus has already done everything that needed to be done to make me right. And so now I get to live in freedom. Now I get to live with joy rather than guilt and shame. The Christian life is challenging. But with God, we overcome. That's why Paul gives us a reminder of our identity in the next few verses. Let's check it out. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Basically here we see Paul being a good teacher. He's repetitive. He's saying something that he said earlier. Despite the tug of war happening between your new life and your old self, your identity is in Jesus. God is truly changing each and every Christian. He's doing this by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Look at Romans, verses, look at Romans 8, verses 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, 
Then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of, of him, Jesus, who, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Oh, yes. And since the spirit is changing you today, he's changing you now. Then it is true that even your bodies, not just your spirit, will totally be delivered from evil and pain. One day, upon Christ's return, we will actually be totally new. Totally new. Something we say around here a lot. Jesus saves, he is saving, and one day, upon Christ's return, we will be saved forever. Because this is true, Paul continues by saying this in verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul concludes right here with a couple practicals for us. Number one, he's saying, listen, there's an obligation. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we should be saying yes to God. See, the Spirit's work in us does not mean that we can be passive. Instead, it is our obligation to demonstrate the life of the Spirit in our daily lives. Are we people who are occupied by the Spirit? Are we occupied by the things of God? The truth is, in Jesus, you have been captured. The Spirit has taken residence in you. In you. He's changing you, and this is happening, but it's not happening magically. Instead, it is a joy of the Christian to come under the leadership of the Spirit. God is working. And we should joyfully submit to his ways and what he says about us. I love what Tim Keller says. If we remember what Christ has done and will will do for us, we will fill the obligations of love and gratitude to serve and know him. Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. That exposure stimulates a wave of gratitude that leads to godly living today. See, we need to declare war on our sin. Godly living is to reject totally everything we know to be wrong. To declare war on attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, we need to be like that. This means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. We actually say no to that, and we also say no to things that will lead to sin. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one, there's things all around us that we should not look at. There are things on our devices. There are things on magazine racks. There are things on our computers. There are images that we should not see. If you want to declare war on your sin, then I would just suggest a couple helpful things. If the temptation is too strong and you find yourself in sin looking at things you shouldn't, friends, please, I plead with you, get rid of your phone. 
Get rid of your computer. Stop taking it in your room where no one can see you with it on. Gosh, go grab another Christian brother or sister and say, listen, I struggle with this. Will you pray with me and will you pray for me? And will you also, Christian, please ask me all the time what I'm looking at? Friends, when you have a brother or sister who's struggling with looking at stuff they shouldn't be looking at, will you please take it seriously and go and ask them pointed questions like, hey, what did you look at on your computer in the last 24 hours? What I tend to see us do instead is we go, hey, man, how's that going? Could that be any more vague? It's good. <laughs> no, what are you looking at? When are you looking at it? And what's going on in your heart? Do we want to declare war on sin? I mean, I've even thought about it this week. I said, is it worth it to you? If this is a struggle for you, if this is a temptation for you that you're finding you're falling into, are you willing to get a landline? Some of you just went, no, like seriously, are you willing to get a landline? It's like so old school though, Kenny. Declare war on sin. What about the sin of coveting or comparison? How do we combat such a sin of the heart? I think number one, we look to Jesus. We seek him and we find earthly treasures are fleeting, but joy in Jesus is everlasting. They possess hollow promises, but his promises are secure. They offer comfort, but God ensures it. Seeking after Christ is the example or the enterprise unlike any other. It never disappoints, and his beauty Loveliness, comfort, peace, and joy surpass all that this world has to offer. What's another way to fight sin of contentment or the sin of comparison? Or excuse me, not sin of contentment, the sin of covetousness. How do we fight the sin of covetousness? How do we also fight comparison? Well, I think another thing is to live in contentment. Sisters, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Maybe you should get off Instagram and quit looking at everybody else's perfect lives. Live in contentment. Contentment is not something we chase after, but it's what we rest in. God is good. Is God good? Right? Okay, well, if God thought it was good for us to have more, he would have given each of us more. This is the mindset we all should seek to maintain. I love a quote by Jason Helopolis. His name is really hard to announce, his last name. But he says this, Contentment is one of those rare jewels. Once found and treasured, it fills the soul with delight. Number three, how do we fight covetousness or 
the sin of comparison. I think we rejoice in thankfulness. Thankfulness steers the Christian life away from the dangers of discontentment. It is difficult to be content in all circumstances if thankfulness does not dwell in our hearts. Therefore, we're not only rejoice in what we personally receive, but also in the good gifts that God gives others. Rather than going, I wish I had what they had, maybe we should go, that's awesome for them. That's awesome for them. I think in both of these, these examples, though, you know, looking at stuff we shouldn't be or the sin of contentment or, or sin of comparison, there's really a way to fight that temptation with the gospel. And I think that logic looks a lot like this. Number one, remember God's love for you demonstrated through his son, Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross. God didn't stop there though. He, he, he says, listen, I've also sent the spirit into your lives, revealing the vileness of sin, motivating us to love our savior and removing our desire to live according to our sinful nature. Friends, bring your temptations to the gospel and find God's love for you. In sending his son to the cross and his spirit into our hearts, show us, God, show us the vileness of that sin. Motivate us to love our savior and remove our desire to live according to the flesh. Friends, let's grow in saying yes to the Spirit. Be preoccupied by God. Intently seek after Him. Let's no longer look at sin passively. Let's stop making excuses. Let's stop thinking that, oh, you know, it'll just go away. I can manage it. No, let's kill it by taking steps towards Jesus even now. See, most importantly, help us, God, to fight off the evil one and his lies. See, we can do that with the gospel, the great news of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? I'm just gonna pray for us as we continue worshiping God in song. God, if there is one thing that I hope we take away from this morning is that in you there is no condemnation. God, help us to really know this truth. Not know about it, but know it in the depths of our guts, in the depths of our heart. Because I know, God, the evil one, he wants to throw at us guilt and shame, and, and it can wreck us. And so, God, I just pray that, Lord, we remember that in you there is no condemnation. And I pray that that right there, God, that right there, that idea, the great news of the gospel would, Lord, motivate us to be occupied 
by you, to be, to set our, our minds intently on you. God, when we do sin, help us to remember these things. Help us to, again, declare war on the things that are not of you. Help us to not be passive. God, we love you and we look forward to growing in these ways. We look forward to, to seeing your spirit shape us more and more like this. We love you in your name.